Hey, listeners, I have a few questions for you. Have you ever wondered how to bargain like an FBI hostage negotiator or how to trick your brain into running longer distances? What about how to make humor your superpower or even how to have the best sex of your life? If so, you need to check out Slate's advice podcast, How To, co-hosted by Amanda Ripley and Carvel Wallace. Each week, listeners reach out with their toughest questions, and Amanda and Carvel bring them on the show where they talk directly with an expert who can solve their problem. The advice is not only surprising, but often life-changing and something we can all learn from. That's How To from Slate, with new episodes dropping every Tuesday. Find it wherever you listen. Hi, everyone. This is Work Appropriate, and I'm your host, Anne Helen Peterson. So everyone has their least favorite piece of work jargon. The liverables, circle back, ping. They all sound ridiculous because they're a language developed to facilitate some of the most ridiculous elements of the contemporary workplace. I really hate ping, but you know what I hate more? Work-life balance. Work is part of life. The entire concept is rooted in a fallacy. When an organization says that they prioritize work-life balance, what they're actually saying is that they believe it's possible to have a life outside of work. But they're not the ones who are going to make that happen. That's on you. You and you alone. And you do it by cultivating and maintaining boundaries. That word means well, it might seem harmless, but it's way more pernicious than ping. I'm going to talk a whole lot more about why I hate the idea of boundaries in this episode, and I don't want to spoil you. But I knew that if we were going to talk about alternatives to boundaries, as in how do you actually cultivate an infrastructure that protects you and others from the incursion of work into every corner of your life, then I needed a co-host who's both struggled and succeeded at building that infrastructure in their own life. Someone who understands just how hard it is to protect yourself, because boundaries are bullshit, but also because breaking boundaries is the primary way ambitious people prove themselves exceptional. I needed someone who thought of a different way and even turned that different way into a business of its own. My name is Stephanie Natty Olson, and I am the founder and executive chair of We Are Rosie, which is a flex career platform that supports 25,000 marketers that want or need to work in a flexible way. So, okay, you define it in that like short little snippet, but can you spell it out? Because whenever I describe what We Are Rosie is to people, they're like, that's amazing. Why, why isn't this more widespread? Like, why doesn't every industry have something like this? Yeah. So we created a marketplace and on one side is, you know, all of these brilliant marketers, 25,000 of them that have raised their hand and said, for whatever reason, whether it's short term or long term, like I could really use a flexible career for this season. Um, And on the other side are many of the biggest global brands in the world, brands like Microsoft and Delta and Chase Bank that come to us and say, I need marketers for project-based work. So people that want to work flexibly would be great for this. And so we just put them together on teams and they tackle like really important, compelling work for these huge brands. Sometimes they work as individual consultants, but 
Our goal is to like remove the stigma from wanting or needing to work in a flexible capacity and to show that you you can have a really meaningful career even if you have some kind of atypical requirements for how work gets done for you. That means where you work from, yeah. the hours maybe that you're available to work, how much you want to work during the week, like the revelation that is part-time work, which many other countries really have like infrastructure in place to support part-time work and we do not. Right. Yeah, all those things. With so many people on our platform, like we've heard a million reasons why people want or need to work in this way. It's like, I want to take summers off with my kids. I'm transitioning genders and don't want to go into an office right now. I'm a caregiver for my elderly parents. I mean, all the things that like make us human and in so many ways make a diverse workforce. And these are all the people that we want on our teams and we want in our organizations. But to your point, especially in the U.S., we've just put up like all of these unnecessary barriers to allowing these folks to thrive at work. And we're working hard to dismantle that at We Are Rosie. And is We Are Rosie just for women? No, we want everybody on our platform. Like we're also doing a ton of work in the diversity and inclusion space. Like we want everybody to have access to flex careers It is women that, you know, most often come to us saying that they need them, but we have over 10,000 men on our platform as well. That's amazing. I think that, you know, one of the things that often gets left out of the conversation of like women trying to have it all or like, do I go back to work? Is it worth the cost of my childcare? You know, those ongoing conversations is like if we had more flexible options for people to be in the workplace, it wouldn't be this very black and white decision of like, do I work or do I not work? There are in between. It's so true. And like every time I see this like really compelling, hardworking, smart woman leave the workforce and say like, I'm just going to go spend some time being a mom or taking care of my family. Sometimes that's wholeheartedly what they want and need to do in that moment. A lot of times it's not right. They just didn't feel like they had a choice. Like I have so many friends that have made that statement or decision, but the underlying premise is like, I I can't, I can't possibly work part-time. I can't possibly be present mm-hmm. with my children when they're home in the summer or move to Kansas to care for my mother who's going through chemo or whatever it may be. Um, it takes a big burden on caregivers for sure with the structure of work as it stands today. So something like 90% of Rosies who work on your platform, they are working remotely. So mm-hmm. within your company, and I mean this both as people who are like, working through the platform, but then also on your own team, right? Like on the team of We Are Rosie, how do you make sure that workers have good work and rest boundaries? Yeah. Well, we do a lot of things, right? We're constantly evolving our benefits um, Mm -hmm. to include things like, you know, paid time off for volunteering. Um, We have very flexible benefits that do cover things like pet care or gender transition um, reassignment or different things like that so that people that have different needs still get support from the company. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not just traditional, like if you have a baby, we're here for you. Anything else like, you know, you're on your own. Um, But we're also constantly kind of reevaluating what we can offer our team and what's necessary. So one of the stories that I like to tell is when I started We Are Rosie, I 
I've, I come from a tech background. And so I've worked at a lot of places that had unlimited PTO. Mm-hmm. And that just seemed like the shortcut. Like, we're going to be a cool, hip tech company, unlimited PTO, right. boom, done. Right. One less thing I need to think about. And I really didn't think about it until COVID started. And my team was so burned out, um, mm-hmm. particularly because we're a mission-focused business. Like, the people that work here care so deeply about the work we're doing. So, and I think that's, it's similar to the nonprofit space where people will just give and give and give because it feels meaningful to them. And people were really getting burned out and exhausted. And I thought, well, why isn't anybody using their PTO? The short story is because I wasn't as the founder and CEO at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, The longer story is actually when I researched it, people don't take PTO yeah. when you give them it's, unlimited PTO. It's less. Yes. Yeah. It's 100% people take less when there's unlimited, right? It's because wild. there's no structure around it. Yeah. And also we don't have a structure in the United States or an expectation of like, yes, this is something that we deserve. Yeah. Right. And there shouldn't it's be like, shame around it. Yeah. Right. Like um, that somehow taking PTO is a weakness. Yeah. It's really nuts. And so what we did at the beginning of COVID is require everyone that works at We Are Rosie to take five days per quarter off. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's like a minimum of five days per quarter, which is 20 days per year. That does not include these like 10 floating holidays and then an additional five um, PTO days that you can use whenever you want. Um, And that really changed the game. It changed our culture around it, right? Like, because you have to. So it was actually tied to your bonus. So you can't capture all of your discretionary bonus that's not tied to business metrics without taking your PTO. And did you take it? Sometimes. <laughs> well, why was that hard? It's hard. I mean, we are we were a bootstrapped company, right? Like we were bootstrapped until December of 21. And I um, had put all of my eggs in this basket. My family yeah. had put all of their eggs in this basket. We had sacrificed a ton to scale the company. And I wanted to, to work all the time, right? Like yeah. that's that was the the way that I could ease my own anxiety about, you know, having all of my net worth, all of my hard work, and, you know, having made all of these sacrifices and my children even making sacrifices that they never agreed to, right, for their mom to be able to do this. And so I wanted to make sure that at the end of the day, I could say I did everything I could for the company to be successful. I totally get that. And I also, from my own experience, I'm like, it makes me feel better to work. But then I also had to come to understand, like, if I don't force myself to do something else sometimes, then when I'm trying to do work, I'm not doing the work well yeah. either. I mean, yeah. to be clear and transparent, I crashed and burned and like yeah. total burnout puddle, you know? <laughs> yeah. So right. um, everybody's human and it doesn't matter how good your intentions are. Um, I'm not the robot that I thought I could be working, yeah. you know, 60, 70 hours a week for five years. <laughs> I interviewed you, gosh, it was almost, it's almost like two years ago now for the book that my partner and I wrote about like the future of flexible work. And one of the things that made it into the book about this idea of boundaries is like boundaries. I, I dislike the word just generally like it is such you know, boundaries are made for people like you and I to break them to yeah. show like what work robots we are. Yeah. And we came up with this idea of guardrails as something that is much more, uh, it's the responsibility of the institution, of the organization to uphold them, right? Instead of putting the impetus on individuals. And part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show today is because I think We Are Rosie is a way for companies 
to be better about creating guardrails for their employees right. by allowing them to backfill for positions that are that are gone. And that's something that we'll talk about later um, and when, when we address some of the questions, but also creating the ability for people to actually say, okay, as an individual, I only want this much work. Yep. I don't want to be working part-time and like they still expect me to work as if I'm full-time, but I'm paid as if I'm part-time. Mm-hmm. If I'm at 60%, I want to do 60% so that I can That's have right. all of these other things in my life that feel really important to me. Yeah. So, all right, this is a great segue into asking our first question, which comes from Alice and I think is going to be very familiar for a lot of people. I've spent my career in the nonprofit sector and no matter the job, keep running into the same challenge, taking on too much work. I'm enjoying and learning a lot from my current job, but I'm also doing the work of unfilled positions and it's beginning to wear on me. While I pride myself on being a good team player, I'm doubting whether it would be effective in asking for a promotion, especially since I'm only about six months into my job. I feel taken advantage of frequently in the nonprofit sector, and while I would genuinely like to grow and have meaningful work, I don't want to be stuck in the loop of taking on others' work only to stay in the same position and be passed over for promotions. Any advice? All right. So before we answer with specific advice for Alice, Stephanie, can you talk a little bit about why companies don't backfill positions? Yeah. So this is something interesting that I've learned in working with CFOs who often have to approve bringing Rosies who are contractors into an organization. Unfortunately, a lot of financial leaders build their business models are their financial models off of keeping seats open. So they literally don't want to fill them. And there's this weird push and pull between the people in the organization that are feeling the the heat and the people that, particularly in large organizations that are reporting numbers. And you would think, well, if there's an open headcount, just fill it. But there are other ways that you can kind of insidiously keep people from filling headcount, right? It's not Mm -hmm. approving the budget that, you know, is market rate for that headcount. It's keeping your talent acquisition team so lean that they can't possibly have the time to fill all the roles that are open within an organization. And like most things, when we're scratching our heads, wondering why businesses do stupid things or things that are detrimental to the people that work there, it's for money. Right. And I think when someone leaves, when there's attrition, there's an expectation, oh, the rest of the team will take up the slack. And then maybe let's see if they can actually just do the job still. And even though it's putting this extra burden on people and maybe they're doing they're becoming less productive individually because they're taking on too much work, there's still like from a financial point of view, oh, we're saving an entire salary. Yeah. Or if someone goes out on maternity leave, same thing. Instead of finding someone to backfill that position, you can just be like, mm, let's just make it work for like, yeah. you know, a year. Yeah. But it slowly, especially I think at companies that continually doing this, you get to this point where, you know, when maybe when someone leaves, they actually are doing the job of three people. It's really true. You're right, though, because the team will step in to help because that's yeah. what what people do by nature. And they mm-hmm. may hold down the fort really well. And then it creates this false narrative that like we never needed that person, yeah. you know? Right. Um, totally. And so and then that just perpetuates. And I think this is especially difficult at organizations with a lot of women, right? Because it's like, oh, let's work together and just make it work, right? Yeah. Uh, so oftentimes nonprofits or other helping fields, which are feminized. And I think, too, that sometimes the like 
the slog work of a particular position will fall on women who are like, okay, I guess I'll have to do this because someone's got to do it, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And maybe the glory parts of a position will fall to the men on the team. Yeah. There's hope, though. Like, this is widespread. And, like, we've got a lot of work to do um, for all the reasons that you just mentioned. But we now have companies calling us specifically for burnout relief for their teams. Wow. So they're getting budget approved to come in. And it could be that this team just got a ton of new work kind of dropped in their laps. Or it could be that a few people have left and they haven't been able to backfill them. Or so many people are going out on parental leave at the same time. And they're actually now setting aside budget and planning for it so that it doesn't, everybody else doesn't feel the pain. So it's slowly but surely some change. And sometimes I know you've told me stories of like people who want more full-time work who come on in this contract scenario then become full-time employees, right? It's like a, it's not exactly the same as how sometimes temp work works, right? Yeah. But it's a similar path because maybe the team understands like, oh, oh my gosh, when not everyone is burned out all the time, when we actually have the headcount necessary yeah. to do the work that we need to do. It's great. <laughs> it's great. And we do better work. Totally. Like, what a revelation. And attrition goes down. Yes. Who would have thought? Yes. Which, you know, is a long-term cost-cutting benefit, but people often don't think about that. So, okay, we have to give some advice to Alice. <laughs> yes, let's do it. I think I have some questions for Alice because I feel like in her question, she mentioned a couple of things in this scenario. Like, yeah, you know, she's starting to feel taken advantage of. She's working really hard and it's taking a toll on her, but also she wants a promotion. Yeah. And so I've got to assume that this with this promotion is tied more money. I don't know the nonprofit sector, right? But like, surely yeah. if she gets a promotion, she's going to get compensated differently. But my fear would be that she gets the promotion, which will undoubtedly come with more responsibility simply because she's going to have a bigger title. And then she's going to continue to be weary and she's going to continue to be the person that picks up all the pieces when things are falling down. And that can backfire long term, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you can't lead, right? If she's promoted into a leadership position, you can't lead if you're the person that's picking up all the pieces. And so I think there's almost like a bigger conversation that I would recommend Alice have with leadership and her organization about her ambition, right? Is her ambition to be promoted? If that's the case, why and what type of work would she like to do? And then maybe she can start to say like, I'm happy to pick up stuff outside. I know that that's just part of it. We all roll up our sleeves here, but can I stay in this lane so that it benefits my long-term career goals? Right. Well, and the other thing is this idea that like being a good team player is somehow always going way above and beyond. Yeah. Which I think is a fallacy. It's very much like a teacher's pet, like accelerated reader yeah. <laughs> trap. <laughs> um, yeah. So what do we how can we change the messaging on that? That like maybe being a good team leader is actually saying no I think it is. I think it gives other people permission to do the same. I just recently wrote about this. And I think to your point, there is a bit of a trap. Like I get like cringe when I hear the term servant leadership because I'm like, I know what that means for women. (laughs) (laughs) It means you completely lose yourself and you just give and give and give until you can't anymore and you feel really empty inside. And it's not, we don't want that for anybody. And so I think like leadership has to come with boundaries. And if you think about in particular, 
the women that I know that are at the top of their game that have been able to sustain it are really good with boundaries. Yeah. And like, don't feel bad about saying no. Unapologetic. And I think that that is something that is hard for people who are people pleasers Mm -hmm. to unlearn. Right. Relatable. Yeah. Yes. 100 percent for me. Like anytime I feel like I'm disappointing someone, I'm like, oh, I I messed up. Yeah. And it's not only that, like, I feel personally like I messed up. I just feel like, oh, I'm bad at my job. I'm bad at everything. Everyone's mad at me. Like Mm -hmm. just all those anxiety voices in your head. And so I think that for Alice and maybe a useful reframing in conversations to have With her coworkers or also with people who aren't at her job, you know, describe what's going on. Be like, okay, what would be, what are some things where I could set boundaries a little bit better? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Things that I need to say no to. I agree. I also think that um, I don't love this idea that like you have to come with a solution. Like don't come to me with a problem if you don't have a solution. Like I think that's shitty leadership in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so I also like the idea if Alice has a good leadership team or people that she enjoys working with, that she can be vulnerable and honest and say, like, here's where I'm at. Can we figure this out together? Can you help me figure this out? Because I care about the work we're doing here and I'm all in. Um, But here's the challenges I'm seeing. And I think that there's something pretty cool about doing that as well without putting all the pressure that, like, you've got to come and ask for a promotion and this much more money and you know, sometimes you can kind of co-create, particularly if you have people you trust inside your organization. And I would say, too, if you go to the leadership on your team and with that sort of approach and they say, oh, you know, we all have to make sacrifices. Like, thanks for being such a team player. Red flag. Like, start looking. Start looking. Yeah. Work Appropriate is brought to you by Article. Summer is on its way. And right now, I'm actually just waiting for the right moment to take the covers off of my outdoor furniture. I have been so excited to actually get to a time where it's not going to be cold, it's not going to be rainy, and I'm going to be able to sit outside in the sun on my chairs. But I don't have all the things that I need. I need like a place to put my laptop that's also in the shade. I need like one place for one beverage and one place for like some chips. I need a place to watch movies, a place to fall asleep on the sofa accidentally while I'm reading. I need all those things. An article has this massive catalog of outdoor furniture that can help you do all of your favorite things this summer. I personally am excited to take a killer nap at like 5 45 p.m you know just as the sun is going down and you're like it's still warm outside it's going to be amazing on one of their really really awesome outdoor couches but i also already legitimately own a bunch of other article things and i know that number one they deliver quickly because stuff is in stock and that if you have a problem with it, you can get in touch with customer service right away. It's all incredibly easy, so much easier than any other furniture ordering process I've ever been a part of. And again, I really mean that. I really own these things. There are a ton of different styles. So like coastal teak like is going to be the beautiful color of like sitting next to the ocean for the rest of your life. There's like more of like a mid-century modern vibe that you can leave outside and like not worry about it getting rusted in two seconds the way that you can with 
other not as high quality furniture. There's just a lot of different styles that fit whatever space you have, even if it's like that tiny little corner off the balcony of your apartment. Right now, Article is offering listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash work and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash work for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Work Appropriate is brought to you by bookshop.org. I love bookshop.org. I am always looking for a way to buy books from a place that is not Amazon. The best way to buy books is in person at a bookstore, and I love Village Books in Fairhaven, which is part of Bellingham. It's my local bookstore. I could spend hours there. But sometimes I don't have enough time to go to the bookstore and pick something up, and I need to order it pretty quickly. And bookshop.org allows you to order the book online, have it delivered to you, but also have part of those proceeds go to your local bookshop. It is incredible. It is everything that I've ever wanted. Most recently, I ordered Hernan Diaz's Trust from bookshop.org. I cannot stop talking about this book. It's the best book I've read all year. It is so weird. I can't even like tell you what it's about because it will mislead you, but it is a marvel. And I encourage you to check it out on bookshop.org and select your local bookstore so that anything that you order, whether it's a book that I recommend or that a book that you've been trying to, to figure out how to get your hands on, that money can go to your local bookshop and you can get it in your hands as soon as possible. Book recommendations on bookshop.org also come from real people who love books, not algorithms. There are also all of these curated lists from people like me <laughs> who love books, and they actually are showing like, oh, this is what people who like this book, who are experts in this particular type of genre, what they would pick. The best part is that when you purchase from bookshop.org, you're supporting local independent bookstores, so they will be around for all of us to enjoy in the future. Bookshop.org has raised over $25 million for local bookstores. Bookshop.org is unapologetically anti-Amazon and believes local bookstores are essential community hubs that foster culture, curiosity, and a love of reading. Join them in helping local bookstores survive and thrive. You can use the code WORK to get 10% off your next order at bookshop.org. That's the code WORK at checkout for 10% off your next order. Our next question is going to tee us up for the question of how available anyone should be at any given time. This is from Jennifer. I am a high school teacher, and my principal asked me to give my personal phone number to be published for use in a phone tree in case of an emergency. It's a small town, and I keep my number private. I don't need phone calls after hours from parents or students. My principal and HR have my phone number. There is also email and an app we use for communication. At what point does this become so intrusive that I can just say no? All right, so I have to admit that my first reaction to this question was like, it's just an emergency phone tree. It's okay. It's going to just be with, you know, the other teachers. But I also think that there's probably something larger at play here with like availability and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So Stephanie, what would you tell Jennifer? So this is so interesting. Wait, I want to ask you a question, Anne. Yeah. I assumed that they wanted her phone number published for parents to have access to. Ah. Is that not what you took from this question? Oh, see, I heard it just because I've been part of these phone trees. Okay. Um, that it is that it would be like, okay, this is who calls who teachers. 
Yeah. Right? And it would be an internal document that all of the teachers have, because I had a phone tree that was like this in case of an emergency. And it was not published for the parents, because I think absolutely do not give that phone number to parents. But did you see she says that she doesn't need after hours calls from parents or students in her question? I think that's what tipped me off that like, is this like a school directory situation? And right. No, no, no. Well, and that, okay. So I think we could, we can think both ways, right? Number one, if it's for publication that parents could have, absolutely do not give that that number away. (laughs) Like the the nice thing about email is that it, you can open it when you want to. You still have that that layer. Mm-hmm. Whereas like a phone call or a text, like those are things that are really incessant and that you can't necessarily ignore all the time. Yeah. So I would say absolutely not if it was for actual public publication. Yeah. But what do you think just generally about accessibility? Like what are the lines that you personally draw with your team and how have they changed over time? Yeah. Um it's a good question. So they have changed over time. Um, for the first four years of We Are Rosie, and we just turned five, my team knew they could call me anytime, day or night. I would not do it to them. So I would not call anybody on my team on a weekend. Like I've probably done that less than three times in four years, right? And, and, and there's exceptions, right? When we were bringing on investors and everybody's cranking, but by and large, no. And that's a precedent I set by not doing it to them. Um, and also trying to like schedule send emails, like send it Monday. Or if I just send it on a Saturday, I'd be like, this is like a subject line. This can wait till Monday, you know, but I try to not even put it in their realm to set kind of that standard. And it's certainly changed over time, you know, like as I've moved into this exec chair role, I'm still really involved in the day-to-day business, but I'm not CEO anymore. So there is a layer between me and the rest of the leadership team that's new for us, right? It's a couple months old. And so I've worked really hard to set those boundaries, right? Like there, my time with my family is absolutely sacred. It was not before. It wasn't. It was let me get up from the dinner table and come help you through this thing that you're working on because you're on the West Coast. And so um, I've just, like, as you mentioned, I'm a total people pleaser. I feel like I'm going to throw up every time I set a boundary. And I just, um, and like flexing that muscle by just saying like, hey, I can't do this. Like, I can't be in this meeting. I can't take that call. And I'm very honest. I'm like, I'm spending time with my kids. I promise them. And that's, that's now a bigger priority for me. So anyway, I think... It's tricky. And I think in this instance, in a small town, this resonates with me. I live in a really small town, Anne. So like, I see my kids' teachers all the time. They live in my neighborhood. There's like, you know, 1,500 people that live here. It's like high school. So everybody's in everybody's I live on an island of 900 people, so I feel (laughs) you. So you know. And and my heart goes out to the people that live and work in this community. So like Mm -hmm. the the people that – the trainers at the gym or the teachers, like – because they can never turn it off everywhere they go. It's like someone that's like, do we have a test next week? You know, like Mm -hmm. So I, I can totally understand in that context why you would want some privacy as much as you can have it and some boundaries between your work and your personal. So again, if this information would be shared with parents or students, absolutely not. Like I think that it's an unreasonable ask. Yeah. Um, all of my kids' teachers have given me their phone numbers. I've never asked for them and it's not expected. And as a parent, 
if a teacher didn't want to give me their cell phone number or didn't proactively give me their cell phone number as my kids teachers have done, it would not be, it wouldn't even cross my mind as like a problem. And I think most of the parents I know would not find that strange or expect it at all. Um, But it sounds like this is an ask coming from the school, which is bizarre. And when I first started teaching, I really prided myself on my accessibility. I also didn't have any kids and was fresh out of grad school. And that to me was like a mark of a good teacher was all of this accessibility. Like I would respond to emails all the time. I would always have my door open to my office. Like it just, it had been imprinted in me that that was how you modeled good teaching. And I think that that is toxic. And there were other teachers who were in my cohort who were older, had transferred from previous professional jobs, you know, like, and they had young kids, that sort of thing. And I think that they, they didn't resent me, but they resented the expectation that this was what good teaching was, right? This is what the sort of teaching that gets you good evaluations, Mm. especially for women, was this model of openness, which is unsustainable, and not just because people have caregiving responsibilities. It can just be like your personality. You yeah. you need to not have this accessibility all the time. And I certainly, if I would have stayed in teaching, would have at some point really burnt out on that sort of accessibility. Yeah. The question then is how does this teacher say no if this is the expectation, right? Like what if her principal says like, well, all the other teachers are doing it. You know, so like, how do you frame it in a way that's not just like, I hate people, like, yeah. I don't want anyone to contacting me? I, I don't know. Like, again, it's it's going to have to be a direct and somewhat vulnerable conversation about I need personal time yep. so that I can be the best possible teacher for these students when I'm on. And yeah. this would disrupt that for me. And like, I want to give these kids my all when we're in the classroom and when I'm doing all the the things outside of the classroom to support the students. And this is just a step too far for me because I don't want to have to be on all the time on the weekends and outside of school hours. But I'm so curious, like, I mean, if it's a school district, like what's the documented policy on this? Like, right, right, right. Because especially with harassment and that sort of thing, like you, you give your phone number and if your kids gets a bad grade, right, like people can call and, and be horrible to you. Yeah. Um, and in a small town, like they probably know where she lives too. Like yeah. all of this is really, I think, really fraught, especially right now with just everything that's happening with education in terms of persecution for education and that sort of thing. Like yeah. I understand the impetus towards privacy for many reasons, even outside of like burnout concerns. And I think that this would be a great place where the principal or the school district could be thinking about how this is a mode of protection, yeah. a way of retaining teachers instead of putting the responsibility on the individual right. to be, you know, the exception that says, I don't want to be on this trait. That's you such know? a good point, you know, and maybe that conversation would prompt a broader conversation, you know, like it, it could just be that they're being lazy like me with unlimited PTO. And then when right. someone brings it to their attention, they're like, God, they're like, oh shit, there's a better way to do this. Maybe we need to actually like put some intention versus just allowing all of our teachers to potentially be on blast by publishing their personal phone numbers. Our next question is all about how do you even learn work boundaries in the first place? This is from Ava. 
I just began working and I like to work hard. For example, I volunteered to work 80 hours for a month on the political campaign I'm working on. However, I don't think I have a good idea of what boundaries I should be setting. I've never heard a good thing about working on a campaign before now, but I've luckily enjoyed it for the most part. However, the lines are blurry sometimes for me. I'm also an optimist and tend to assume that my higher-ups have my best interest in mind, which may not always be the case. How do I learn to set boundaries and know when what I'm doing is fine and good, or if their expectations are not work-appropriate? This is relatable. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I'm inferring, this might not be 100% correct, but I am inferring that this is a person who is new to the workforce, who maybe has only had volunteer positions before, So we got a lot of questions that are similar to this, like how do you start with a new job while also setting a good first impression? So what do you think, what advice can we give Ava to try to figure out how to draw these lines? Yeah, I mean, I always go back to like, what are your objectives as an employee and as a person with a career? And there's no right answer to that because everybody's different. And so I come from a potentially unpopular school on this where I graduated college and wanted to climb the corporate ladder as fast as humanly possible. And so I remember early on in my career, I was doing very similar things. I was like constantly asking for the ball if there was a project or something that I could learn from that would make me more valuable down the road. I wanted to do it. And that was that season of my career, right? That was not the case when I had a newborn at home, right? But in when I was 23, 24, like, I was like, I'm going to make the most of this season. And so in some instances, I'm like, I don't know, like, if you're, if you're happy to do it, and you feel good, like, and, and you feel like it's making you a more valuable employee, or whatever your, your um, kind of area of specialty is, then do it if you're happy, like I did it. And it got me promoted really quick. And it got me, you know, I was the youngest insert award here. I was the youngest salesperson of the year. I was the youngest person making this much money at the company. And so but those were my goals. And so my goals were not work life balance. (laughs) My goals were Mm -hmm. not being able to hang out with my friends after work. Um, And I didn't feel resentful about it, because that it was making me the person that I, I wanted to become. So sometimes I think we can like really vilify people that think like me that are like, no, I just I want to bust my ass right now. I'm into it. I don't want to have boundaries. I just like I've got this window where I can give it all. And I want to do that. Um, But I think in this instance, like you've got to get real. What do you want? Do you want more balance? Do you want to like crank on your career right now um, before your life gets more complicated? Um, I think that's always an important kind of place to start. Something that I've come to adopt in my own career is thinking more in terms of seasons. So like there will be a season and it doesn't necessarily correspond with like an actual season, right, of the year. But it's like there will be a season where I'm cranking, where I am all cylinders go and it feels good. But I'm trying to be more mindful, too, of then being like, okay, that's done. This is going to be a season of less work and Mm -hmm. more rest. And that doesn't mean like no work. That just means I say no to a lot more things. Yep. And I say yes to a lot more friend things and yes to a lot more time gardening. Like 
I think there are ways to really listen to yourself. It took me, though, until I was in, you know, my late 30s, early 40s to come to that understanding that, like, it doesn't have to be all the time. And so I think the advice that I would give this question asker would be to set up apparatuses in your life that allow you to continually reflect about where you are and how you're feeling about your work so that the inertia of just cranking all the time doesn't sweep you up and keep you like going forward past the point where it does feel good Mm. because I think we very rarely question you know it's not until you feel horrible that people are like oh my gosh I need to go into therapy I need to have conversation with my manager I need to do whatever yeah instead of continually having those things set up and so depending on the character of this person I think like setting an alarm on your calendar for like prompts every month that ask you to just journal. How am I feeling? Yeah. Do I feel really lonely? Do I feel really accomplished but also really isolated? Does this feel good? Mm-hmm. Or also having, I think, like what friends you you have who are in the business and outside of your business to like have these conversations about this is what my life is like. This is what it feels like. This is how other people in my profession treat me. Mm-hmm. Because having those people outside of your industry, I think, is especially useful in terms of calling out like, no, this is not normal. This is not okay. Yeah, for sure. I love what you said about checking in because I experienced what you've just described where I came out of college swinging and was cranking for a decade. And it was so jarring for me when I had like my ego was in absolute shambles because Mm -hmm. I was about to give birth to my oldest daughter And knew that I couldn't work like that. I couldn't be in New York five days a week and live in Atlanta anymore. And I thought that was the only way to do it. So I had only ever experienced that one season of go all the way and go really hard all the time. And it was a big blow to my ego. And now, 10 years after that, I can look back and say, like, that was just a different season for me. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's nothing is forever. God, if anything I've learned from parenting is like nothing is permanent or forever. So I love this idea of seasons. I love the idea of reflection and setting different goals for different seasons. You know, like, is this helping me achieve my goal for this season? And then just, you know, kind of give yourself some mechanism for feedback loop. What about the part of Ava's question that says, I'm an optimist and tend to assume that my higher ups have my best interest in mind? What do you think about that? Well, I've been on both sides of that. I'm an optimist too. And I've been very fortunate. I've worked for really amazing people most of my career, but I've experienced this both ways. So my first job out of college was with a a global kind of fortune 10 company. And I came in and six months in, I said, I want a promotion. Like I want to be into the next role. And they were kind of like, oh, that's cute. And so they gave me this whole list of stuff that I needed to do to get promoted. I was like, just tell me what I need to show you guys and I'll do it. And they said, yeah, finish this list in a year. Well, I did it in six months and was back in that office and saying, hey, this is what we agreed to. And they, then there was a bunch of excuses for why I couldn't get the promotion. And so I left. But yeah. the thing that I did that was smart was I had an agreement, right? I was very upfront about what I wanted. I was upfront about what I was willing to do to get it. And we had an agreement. It was a verbal agreement, but still, right? Like, and it was, okay, this is the thing. So I had really forced their hand and saying, I know I'm young, but help me understand what would make you feel really good about giving me this next role. 
And so it didn't work out there, but I did learn how to, you know, get people's buy-in on your career path. And then if they don't end up being able to deliver, then you know what you're dealing with, or you know that maybe there's more obstacles at this place than I realized to getting what I want. And then I, you know, you can go to another place. So I think that was something that I learned early on, but I will say by and large throughout my career, I have seen that the a lot of people that go above and beyond consistently do get rewarded, but you know if you have a good boss. Like, you know, <laughs> you know intuitively mm-hmm. if like mm-hmm. the people around you are looking out for you or not and trust your gut on that is my answer on that front for sure. Get ready to be transported back to 1973 New York City with Stift, the new podcast from Crooked Media and iHeartRadio. In this eight-part series, host Jennifer Romolini takes you on a wild ride through the rise and fall of Viva, the erotic magazine for women started by porn king publisher Bob Guccione that rocked the publishing world. With a team of feminist writers and editors behind it, Viva in its original form had full frontal male nudity, a fashion section run by Anna Wintour, and cover stars like Bianca Jagger. But were they doomed to fail from the beginning? Check out the first two episodes of Stift right now. Listen for free on your favorite podcast platform. Work Appropriate is brought to you by Smile Actives. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Are your teeth aging you? Popular food and drinks are known to stain teeth. Beverages like coffee and wine stain them over time. So what can you do to brighten your smile? Well, you should give Smile Actives a try. It's safe, effective, easy to use, and will keep you smiling proudly. 97% of Smile Active users in a clinical trial reported up to six shades whiter on average, all within 30 days. Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Well, before you visit a dentist, you should know that their whitening treatments can be very expensive, and it's not just the price. You also have to book the appointment and schedule time away from work or family to sit in a dentist's office chair while undergoing the procedure. It's a hassle. Fortunately, now you can try a Smile Actives at home or anywhere, anytime. Smile Actives offers a safe and an affordable alternative to those expensive whitening procedures. Simply add Smile Actives Pro Whitening Gel to your regular toothpaste. It's been formulated with PolyClean technology to boost stain removal and deliver active whitening ingredients into teeth's grooves and crannies to get better whitening. Smile Actives makes a teeth whitening gel that can simply be added to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth. No change in your routine, no extra time, yet people will start commenting on your whiter, brighter smile in just days. Smile Actives is the whitening boost your favorite toothpaste needs to give you the smile you deserve. Visit smileactives.com work today to receive our special buy one, get one free offer with auto delivery and free shipping and handling. That's smileactives.com work. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Work Appropriate is brought to you by Shopify. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify and the moment another business dream becomes a reality. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling Taylor Swift appreciation greeting cards or Dahlia tubers, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can focus on successfully growing your business. Shopify covers every sales channel, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. It even lets you sell across social media marketplaces like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without having to learn any new skills in design or code. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support your success every step of the way. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify is there to empower you with the confidence and control to revolutionize your business and take it to the next level. Next, it's your turn to get serious about selling and try Shopify today. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash workappropriate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash workappropriate to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash workappropriate. So this question is something that I think a lot of people actually have no experience with or even like know that it's a possibility. So Ella wants to know how to ask to go part time. And our producer Melody is going to read it. What's the best way to ask your employer to let you go part time? I did this in my last job and it didn't work, but I was shocked at how little there was online about how to do this, like what to include in your request, etc. I basically made it my own proposal, but I think if we talked about it more, it would be more normalized. So how would you advise this person about how they could come up with language about how to think about going part-time? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing you have to do is kind of understand the the macro landscape yeah. in this company. Yeah. So does anybody else work part-time? Do you anticipate your direct manager being empathetic to your request? Do they have the power to approve it? Like who are the stakeholders that would have to sign off on this? Um, what would the kind of contingency plan look like? So if we moved forward, do they need to hire somebody else part-time? Yeah. Could you do your job part-time? Like, I, I don't know. Could there be, you know, six months out of the year when we're not in our busy season, I can handle everything. And less hours, you know, and then so just these other six months, we might need some help. But I think kind of getting the lay of the land will help you come up with how you should bring it up. If you have a good leader, I recommend talking to somebody about this verbally before you drop a five page proposal in their lap. I think that it's helpful to read the room and kind of understand what their knee jerk reaction is. And if they're an ally, they'll help you understand like, oh, man, I totally get why you want to do this. I'd be supportive. But here's the deal. Like we have to get Bill and Mary and Susan to sign off. (laughs) So, you know, how can we do that together? Here's what I need to see from you. And maybe they'll help you build it. Um, I think if you don't do that first and you don't have that kind of partner in leadership, it's going to be really hard to get this done anyway. And you're not going to override that kind of lack of allyship by just dropping a five-page proposal on anybody. So I think having that initial conversation and having your why, which is always helpful (laughs) anytime you're asking somebody for something and reiterating your commitment to the company and to the role and, you know, your aspirations for your career. This doesn't mean I'm like checking out. It means for the season, (laughs) I need to work part-time. I think that um, the best way is to try to get some help from a potential decision maker on the matter. I think it's worth saying, too, that part of the reason that employers in the United States are reticent to allow people to go part time or to even hire part time positions is because they have to pay benefits for that mm-hmm. person if they're over a certain you know, amount of, of time. And if we lived in a country where health insurance wasn't through your employer, then that would be a different scenario. Mm-hmm. But one thing that this question asker could potentially have on their side is like, I can go on my partner's health insurance. 
So I hate that that's part of what would probably make a company more on board. But if that is the case for you, then that might be part of the case that you can make. Yeah, that's a really good point. What would you say if someone on your team asked to go part-time? How would you conceive of that? We have people who have worked part-time, certainly for different parts of their career. I mean, my so I mean, of course, people feel like they can't ask those questions here. And I think my initial question to them would be like, so what would we need to do to cover the work? Like, can you just help me understand? Like, I'm not sitting in your seat every day. What what would that look like? Like, what do yeah. you think you could unequivocally handle and X number of hours per week, what would fall outside of that? And then let's figure out kind of how it would look like, let's back it up from there. Let's just look at all the work that needs to be done. And then we'd have to figure out how we can split it up. But we really adopt an accordion model at We Are Rosie. So we, we use our own model. So we bring people on part-time um, to see if, you know, do we need this role full-time or not? Or for backfill, or we just had someone on our team, sadly, who has a cancer diagnosis. So we're bringing on somebody part-time while she receives treatment. So it's pretty common here. Um, yeah. But I, that would be my first question is just kind of help me understand, like, What's the vulnerability in getting all the work done? And what could you do if we said yes to your proposal? Yeah. Do you think if you like your job, but full-time is just not sustainable, do you think it's smarter for the person to ask for the part-time job or to quit and just look for another part-time job? I mean, I think it's tough to answer. You have like it depends on how receptive your audience is. But what I will say is that you have to like, please ask, because I wanted a promotion really badly at one of my jobs um, earlier on in my career. And I had been told that the only way I could get it was to move to New York, which was out of the question for me for a bunch of reasons. So I just thought, I guess I reached my ceiling here. And it was heartbreaking for me, but I made good money. And I was, you know, able to be in Atlanta. And so I was, you know, satisfied from that regard. Well, lo and behold, a couple of years later, a colleague of mine, wanted a promotion. And she went to the leadership at the company and said, I want this promotion. Same thing. You got to move to New York. So she said, um, okay, I'll move to New York for a year with my family. You all will pay for me to live in New York for a year. And I will fly back to Atlanta to visit family. Her kids were really young, so they weren't in school um, once a month. And they said, yes. And I remember what? thinking, holy shit, why didn't I ask? Like, why didn't I just ask? You know, I just assumed that like there was no in between, but she totally expanded their aperture and what was possible. And I was really proud to like see it happen for her. And she did it. She moved right. back to Atlanta and is like an S, she's still there, actually. She's like an SVP. Well, and the other thing I think, you know, from our earlier conversation, we were talking about like, look at your company, see if anyone else is doing it. And maybe you look at your company and no one else is part time and you're like, oh, there's no way that they're going to let me. But maybe you're the person who widens the company's aperture yeah. to start thinking about this as a possibility to make work more sustainable at your company. Totally. The other thing I would say is that sometimes you don't need to go part time. Sometimes you need to have a conversation with your manager about your job responsibilities. I was just about to bring this up. So I'm so glad okay. you did. So <laughs> our max hours for our rosy consultants is 40 hours a week or legally yeah. they earn overtime. So when we're scoping a project, it's like, here's, you know, this person for 40 hours a week, 
not a minute more or you're paying them overtime. And so our clients are really on top of that. They're like, okay, not a minute more. We got it. And so a lot of times our clients try to hire our Rosies and they're like, look, you're already working full time. You're working here 40 hours a week. Just come on board. And I've got to say like 80 or 90% of the time our Rosies say no, because they know what full time really means. And it's not 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And they, our Rosies want full-time work at 40 hours. They don't want full-time work at 55 hours. And that's our clients are continuously like, why? Like, why won't they come? And I'm like, well, because they know. <laughs> like, they have a firm boundary here. Like, the model right. has a firm boundary built in. And yeah. once they go convert to a full-time employee or they take a full-time job with you, that boundary has gone. And these right. people know it. And so I totally agree with you. Like, I think a lot of times people are like, I have to go part-time just to have a boundary to say, oh, Mm -hmm. I'm at my 25 hours. But the boundary could be set on like redefining what is full. Full Full-time is not 60 hours a week. Yeah. And I hate that like, oh, the boundary, it's like incumbent on you to take a pay cut in order to make work sustainable instead of like, let's figure out how to actually make work sustainable for all of us. But this is that's a great way to end this episode, actually. (laughs) Um, It's just like, sometimes you need to go part time. And sometimes you need to have a larger conversation with your manager, with your team, whatever, about how much work there is. I'm so grateful that you took the time to join us today. Where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Yeah, you can find me at Stephanie Natty Olson, N-A-D-I-O-L-S-O-N on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at Stephanie N. Olson. And you can check out the We Are Rosie website at com. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Work Appropriate. If you've got a workplace quandary you need help figuring out, get in touch. Some episodes we're working on include issues around parental leave, how to care less about your job, and then we're doing a My Industry is Broken episode on veterinary medicine. So if you know someone who's in veterinary medicine, please pass it along to them. You can find submission guidelines at workappropriate.com or send a voice memo with your question to workappropriate at cricket.com. Don't forget to follow us at Crooked Media on Instagram and Twitter for more original content, host takeovers, and other community events. You can follow me on Twitter at Anne Helen or on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson. You can sign up for my newsletter, Culture Study, at annhelen.substack.com. And if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a review. Work Appropriate is a Crooked Media production. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, your host. Our executive producer is Kendra James. Melody Rowell is our producer and editor. Allison Falzetta is our development producer. Music is composed by Chanel Critchlow. Additional production support from Ari Schwartz. And special thanks to Katie Long and Sarah Geismer. Next week, we're looking at another failing industry, answering questions from fed-up listeners who write for a living. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. <laughs>